Section four of a brief history of forestry by Bernard Fernau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Germany, part two. First development of forestry methods, period fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred. The period following the Middle Ages marks the gradual changes from the feudal system to the modern state organizations, and to considerable change of ownership conditions and forest treatment. Various causes which led to an increased development of industrial life were also instrumental in hastening the progress of forest destruction. At the same time, during this period, the germs and embryonic beginnings of every branch of forestry, real forestry policy, forestry practice, and forestry science are to be noted. By the end of this period, Preparatory to more modern conditions, we find organized technical forest administrations, well-developed methods of silviculture, and systems of forest management. 1. Development of Forest Property Conditions A number of changes in the conceptions of political relations, in methods of life and of political economy, brought further changes in property conditions on the same lines as those prevailing in the 14th and 15th centuries. These changes were especially influenced by the spread of Roman law doctrine regarding the rights of the governing classes, by the growth of the cities favoring industrial development and changing methods of life, by the change from barter to money management favored by the discovery of America, by other world movements, and by the resulting changes in economic theory. Through the discovery of the new world and the influx of gold and silver that came with it gave impetus to industry and commerce of the cities. The rapid increase of money capital increased extravagance and induced a desire for amassing wealth, which changed modes of life, changed policies and systems of political economy. The fiscal policy of the many little principalities was dominated by a desire to get a good balance of trade by fostering exports of manufacturers, but forbidding exports of raw materials like forest products, also by forbidding imports, subsidizing industries, fixing prices by law, and taking in general an inimical attitude towards outsiders except in so far as they sent gold and silver into the country. This so-called mercantilistic system, which saw wealth not in labor and its products, but in hoarded gold and silver, had also full sway in England under Cromwell and in France under Colbert's influence. This fiscal policy, which was bent upon bringing cash into the country, led under the direction of servile officials to oppressive measures. A reaction naturally followed when it was pointed out that the real wealth of a nation lies in its natural resources and in its labor. But this so-called physiocratic doctrine had little practical influence except to prepare men's minds for the reception of the teachings of Adam Smith at the end of the period. The doctrine of the Roman law, deified by the jurists and commentators, undermined the national conceptions and institutions of free citizenship and of existing property relations. Courts, legislation, and administration were subject to their sway, and this influence lasted, in spite of reactions, until the end of the 18th century. 
under it the doctrine of the imperium the seigneurage or superior power of the princes hoheitsrecht was further developed into the dominium terrae in other words superior ownership of all the land which gives rise to the title and the exercise of the function of landesherren masters of the land and confers the privilege of curtailing and even discontinuing private property rights to sustain their position in each of the state units a restriction of the autonomy of churches and cloisters of the mock and of the vassals became needful to the princes this was secured by taking the first under their protection by making themselves obermarkers and by changing vassals who held office in fief to employees beamte for a time the three privileged classes of prelates knights and burghers combined in the landstand or landtag participated in some of the functions of government especially in raising and administering taxes but by the second half of the fourteenth century the princes had become absolute and the doctrine of the hoheitsrecht was firmly established under this doctrine the historic position of the mock is perverted and instead of being the common property of the people it becomes the property of the prince on which he graciously permits the usufruct for forest pasture and water vault vida vasa are res publicie hence ownerless and at the disposal of the king through this new construction of relationship as well as through the same machinations and tricks which the princes as obermerker or headman of the mark had employed during the foregoing period in usurping power and partly through voluntary dissolution was the decadence of the social economic and political organization of the mock gradually completed the original usufruct of a property held in common is explained in the roman sense as a precarium or servitude and from being a right of the whole organization becomes a right of the single individual or group of individuals in this way the socialistic basis of the mock is destroyed through the exercise of the forsthoheit in other words the superior right of the prince over all forest property by the appointment of the officials instead of their election by issuance of ordinances in short by the usurpation of the legislative and police power the political power of the mock is broken and the thirty years war completes the breakdown the pride of the burgher and the peasant is gone their autonomy destroyed and their economic and political organizations sink into mere corporations based on land tenure which according to roman doctrine come under the regulation of the state or prince the nobility move into the cities and leave the administration of their estates to officials who are constantly pressed to furnish the means for the extravagant life of their masters these in turn harass and oppress the peasantry who finally become bondsmen gutsherrich bound to the glebe and lose their independence entirely these briefly are the steps by which the changes social and economic progressed reforms in this situation of the peasantry began first in prussia in seventeen o two when bondage was abolished for all those who could purchase their houses and farms from the gentry as few had the means to do so the result was the creation of a proletariat hitherto unknown because under the old feudal system the lord had to feed his impoverished bondsmen from which he was now absolved
changes in forest property in particular were brought about by the increase of princely property through the various methods of exercising the seigniorage especially after the thirty years war ownerless tracts falling under this right were plentiful in addition wherever wastelands grew up to wood they were claimed by the princes Quote, wenn das holz dem ritter reicht an den sporn hat der bauer sein recht verloren when wood has grown up to the spur of the night the peasant has lost his right some additions came from the secularization of church and cloister property and others by the slices which the princes of obermerker secured from the mock forest by various artifices it is these properties which in prussia were turned over by the king to the state in seventeen thirteen and by other princes not until the nineteenth century the same means which the princes employed were used by the landed gentry to increase their holdings especially at the expense of the mark from which in their capacity of obermerke they secured portions by force or intrigue the peasants forest property the mock forest had by the nineteenth century been almost entirely dismembered part having come into the hands of the princes and barons part having been divided among the merke and part having become corporation forest in the modern sense partition had become desirable when the restrictions of use which were ordered for the good of the forest became unendurable under the rigid rule of appointed officials but the expected improvement in management which was looked for from partition and private ownership was never realized after the thirty years war the free cities were impoverished and their autonomy undermined by roman doctrine from free republics they became mere corporations under the supervision of appointed officials and experienced decadence in political as well as material directions hence no increase in city forest took place except through division of the mock forest in which cities had been co-owners and through secularized properties of cloisters the worst feature from the standpoint of forest treatment which resulted from these changes in property conditions and relationship was the growth of the pernicious servitudes or rights of user which were either conferred to propitiate the powerless but dangerous peasantry or evolved out of the feudal relations from the sixteenth to the nineteenth centuries these servitudes grew to such an extent that in almost every forest someone outside of the owner had the right to use parts of it either the pasture or the litter or certain classes or sizes of wood these rights have proved the greatest impediment to the progress of forestry until most recent times and only within the last few decades have the majority of them been extinguished by legal process or compromise two forest conditions under the exercise of these various rights and the uncertainty of property conditions the forest conditions naturally deteriorated continuously until the end of the eighteenth century the virgin woods were called of their wealth and then grew up to brush as is usual in the united states every forest ordinance began with complaints regarding the increasing forest devastation and predicted a timber famine in view of the increasing population increasing industry and commerce and hence increased wood consumption 
especially along the water routes which furnish the means of transportation, the available supplies were ruthlessly exploited. More serious enemies than the exploitation of the timber proved the pasturing of cattle, the removal of the litter, and above all the fires. Towards the end of the sixteenth century, ordinances against forest fires began to be enacted, yet, as late as 1778, the necessity of keeping the rides or fire lanes open in the forests of eastern Prussia is justified by the statement that, quote, otherwise the still constantly recurring fires could not be checked. At another place it is stated that, quote, not a single acre of forest could be found in the province that had not been burnt in former or later times, and that, quote, the people are still too much accustomed to the ruthless use of fires, so that no punishment can stop them. Other causes of devastation were the Thirty Years' War, the wars of the 18th century, and the loss of interest in the forest by the peasants after the collapse of the Mach. These had often to steal what they needed, and their depredations were increased by the desire to revenge themselves on the landed proprietors for the oppressions to which they were subjected. The increase in game, which was fostered by the landed gentry, did much damage to the young growths, and the increase in the living expenses of the nobility, who mostly abandoned country for town, had to be met by increased exploitation. By the end of the Middle Ages, the reduction of forest area had proceeded so far that it was generally believed desirable to restrict the making of clearings to exceptional necessities, except in the northeastern parts and in the distant mountain districts. Yet, a growing population increased the need for farmland, and since intensive use of the existing farm area was not attempted until the end of the 18th century, the forest had to yield still further. 3. Methods of Restriction in Forest Use All ordinances issued by the princes to regulate the management of their properties contain the prescription that permission of the Landesherr is necessary for clearings, and that abandoned fields growing up to wood are to be kept as woodland, this partly for timber needs, partly for considerations of the chase. Still, Frederick the Great in colonizing East Prussia expressed himself to the effect that he cared more for men than for wood, and enjoined his officials to colonize especially the woods far from water, which entailed even more waste of wood than where means of transportation allowed at least partial marketing. Improvident clearings proceeded even under his reign on the Frischenehrung between Danzig and Pilau, and started the shifting sands of that peninsula. In the absence of all knowledge as regards the extent to existing supplies or of the increment, and with poor means of transportation, at least local distress was imminent. To stave off a threatening timber scarcity, regulation in the use of wood was attempted by the forest ordinances, even to the extent of forbidding the hanging out of green bush to designate a drinking hall, or the cutting of may trees similar to our crusade in the united states against the use of christmas trees a diameter limit to which trees might be permitted to be cut was also frequently urged regulation of forest use did not confine itself to the princely properties alone but in the interest of the whole the restrictions were extended to all owners these restrictions were directed either to the practice in the exploitation of the forest 
or in the use of the material. In the latter direction, the attempts at reducing the consumption of building timber are of special interest. Building inspectors were to approve building plans and inspect buildings to see that they were most economically constructed, that repairs were made promptly to avoid the necessity of more extensive ones, that new buildings replacing old ones were not built higher than the old ones. In Saxony, as early as 1560, it was ordered that the whole house must be built of stone, while elsewhere the building of stone base walls and the use of brick roofs instead of shingles was insisted upon. Even the number of houses in any community was restricted. Fences were to be supplanted by hedges and ditches. Economies in charcoal burning, in potash manufacture for glass works, and in the turpentine industry were prescribed. And about 1600, the burning of potash for fertilizer was forbidden entirely, but these laws proved unavailing. Even in fuel wood, a saving was to be effected by using only the poorer woods and windfalls, by instituting public bake ovens, still in use in Westphalia, by improving stoves, restricting the number of bathing rooms, etc. The consumption of fuel wood seems to have been enormous, for we find record of two hundred cords used by one family in a year, and of twelve hundred cords or more used by the court at Weimar during the same time. The substitution of turf and coal for firewood was ordered in some sections in 1697 and again in 1777, but practically not until 1780 did coal come in as a substitute. Tan bark peeling was also forbidden, or only the use of bark of trees soon to be felled was allowed. For cooperage, only the top dry oak. For coffins, only soft wood, or, according to Joseph II of Austria, no wood but black cloth was to be used. In some parts of the country, the use of oak was restricted even as early as 1562. For regulating practices in the forest, the restrictions often took only the general form of forbidding devastation without specifying what that meant. Then, besides establishing a diameter limit and regulating pasture in order to protect young growth, excluding sheep and goats entirely, an attempt was made to secure at least orderly procedure in the fellings. Foresters were to designate what was to be cut even for firewood. Marking irons and hammers were employed for this purpose by the middle of the 15th century, usually two markings by forester and by inspector to check. And this designation by officials extended even into the private forests, where finally no felling was allowed without previous permission and designation by a forester. The use of the litter by the small farmers had grown to a large extent in these times, and it was thought desirable to stop it. But this aid to the poor peasant was so necessary that only regulating the gathering of it could be insisted upon. It must be understood that all these various attempts at securing a conservative forest use were by no means general, but refer to circumscribed territory, and much of it was only paper legislation without securing actual practice. 4. Development of Forest Policy With the beginning of the 18th century, we find, besides these prescriptions against wasteful use, 
and ordinances regulating the management of the properties of the princes, definite forest policies in some sections, having in view forest preservation and improvement of forest conditions, and also means of providing wood at moderate prices. Between the years 1550 and 1590, most of the German states had already enacted ordinances which had the force of general law exercising police functions over private forest property, although in Prussia this general legislation did not occur until 1720. The objects in view with this legislation were entirely of a material kind, the conservation of resources. Besides securing the rights of the Landesherr to the chase, it was to secure a conservative use of the princely as well as private forests, since devastation of the latter would require the former to be drawn on extravagantly. It was to stave off a timber famine, and in certain localities to assure particularly the mining industry of their wood supplies. There were, however, concessions made to the privileged and influential classes of forest owners. By the end of the 18th century, this forest police owing to the uncontrolled harshness and the grafting practices of the lower officials, had become the most hated and distasteful part of the administration. The argument of the protective influence of forest cover did not enter into this legislation. This argument belongs to the 19th century. Yet, Riboisement of Torrance had already, in 1788, been recognized as a proper public measure in German Austria, although active work in that direction was not begun until nearly a century later. The rise of prices during the 17th and 18th centuries had been very considerable, doubling, trebling, and even quadrupling in the first half of the 18th century. The mercantilistic doctrines of the time led, therefore, to attempts to keep prices low by prescribing rates for wood, and in general by restricting and regulating wood commerce. This was done especially by interdicting sale to outsiders, forbidding export from the small territory of the particular prince, or at least giving preference to the inhabitants of the territory as purchasers and at cheaper rates. Owing to the small size of the very many principalities, the free development of trade was considerably hampered by these regulations. Sometimes also wood imports were prohibited, as, for instance, in Württemberg, when, in 1740, widespread windfalls had occurred which had to be worked up and threatened to overstock the market. Wood depots under government control were established in large cities, and the amount of wood to be used per capita prescribed, as in Königsberg, 1702. In Berlin, in 1766, a monopoly of the fuel wood market was rented to a corporation, excluding all others except by permission of the company. This was in 1785 supplanted by government administration of the woodyards. Another such monopoly was created in the Nutzholzhandelsgesellschaft, Wookwood Sales Agency, for the export trade of building materials from Kermach and Magdeburg, which had prior right of purchase to all timber cut within given territory, the idea being to provide cheap material for the industries. This, too, came into the hands of the state in 1771. In Prussia, to prevent overcharges, the Jews were excluded from the wood trade in 1761. The exercise of Forsthoheit, princely supervision, originating in the ban forests and favored by the mercantilistic and absolutist ideas of the 17th and 18th centuries, 
gradually grew until the end of the 18th century to such an extent that the forest owners themselves were not allowed to cut a tree without sanction of some forest official and could not sell any wood without permission even down to hop poles although the large landed property owners vigorously resisted this assumption of supervisory powers much discussion and argument regarding the origin of this right to supervision was carried on by the jurists upon the basis of roman law doctrine and it was proved by them to be of ancient date the degree however to which this supervision was developed varied considerably in the different parts of the empire according to different economic conditions the interference and the protection of forests appeared more necessary where advanced civilizations and denser population created greater need for it we find therefore that the restrictive policy was much more developed in the southern and western territories than in the northern and eastern ones where the development begins two centuries later the oldest attempts of controlling private forest property are found in bavaria 1516 brunswick 1590 and Württemberg 1614 here forest properties were placed either entirely under the supervision of the princely forest administration or at least permission for intended fellings had to be secured later these restrictions were considerably reduced in rigor bavaria 1789 in prussia private forest property remained free from government interference well into the eighteenth century an edict by the great elector in sixteen seventy merely inveighs against the devastation of forests by their owners but refrains from any interference and the forced ordnung of seventeen twenty also contains only the general injunction to the owners not to treat their forests uneconomically but in seventeen sixty six frederick the great instituted a rigid supervision providing punishment for fellings beyond a special budget determined by experts soon after the french revolution however unrestricted private ownership was re-established church and cloister property had always been severely supervised similar to the mock and other communal forest property under the direction either of specially appointed officials or the officials of the princes finally in some sections hesse kassel seventeen eleven baden seventeen eighty seven the management of these communal forests was entirely undertaken by the government in prussia by the order of seventeen fifty four the foresters of the state were charged with the supervision of the communal forests in which they were to designate the trees to be felled and the cultures to be executed but as there was no pay connected with this additional duty and the districts were too large the execution of this supervision was but indifferently performed in 1749 a special city forest order placed the city forests in prussia under the provincial governments requiring for their management the employment of a forester and the inspection of his work by the provincial forest master five personnel although all this supervision was probably more or less lax the possibility of more general and incisive influence was increasing because the personnel to whom such supervision could be entrusted was at last coming into existence the men in whose hands at the beginning of the eighteenth century lay the task of developing and executing forest policies and of developing forestry practice came from two very different classes 
The work in the woods fell naturally to the share of the huntsmen and forest guards, who by their practical life in the woods had secured some wood lore and developed some technical detail upon empiric basis. These so-called Holzgerecht Jäger, woodcrafty hunters, prepared for their duties by placing themselves under the direction of an established huntsman, who taught them what he knew about the rules of the chase, while by questioning wood-choppers, colliers, etc., and by their own observation the knowledge of woodcraft was acquired. At the head of affairs stood the so-called camaralis, or chamber officials, men who had prepared themselves by the study of philosophy, law, diplomacy, and political economy for the positions of directors of finance and state administration. Rather ignorant of natural science and without practical forestry knowledge, their efforts were not always well directed. They deserve credit, however, for having collected into encyclopedic volumes the empiric knowledge of the practitioners of Holzgerechten, and for having elaborated it more or less successfully. In this work they were joined by some of the professors of Cameralia and law at the universities. By the middle of the eighteenth century, the hunters had so far grown in knowledge and education as to be able to produce their knowledge in books of their own. Quite a literature developed, full of acrimonious warfare of opinions, as is the rule wherein Puricism rules supreme. Notable progress, however, came only when hunting was placed in the background and more or less divorced from forest work. 6. Development of Silviculture in addition to the restrictive measures and attempts at mere conservative lumbering, without much thought of reproduction, there were as early as the 16th century silvicultural methods applied to secure or foster reproduction. Owing to differences in local conditions and difference in necessities, this development varied greatly in various sections as to the time it took place. The western and middle country practiced as early as the 16th century what in the eastern country did not appear until the eighteenth century. The forest ordinances from which we derive our knowledge or inferences of these conditions prescribed, to be sure, many things that probably were not really put into practice. A. Natural Regeneration Was at first merely favored, without the adoption of any very positive measures to secure it, namely, by removing the cut wood within the year, so as to give young growth a chance of establishing itself, by removing the brush so as to not smother the young growth, by keeping out cattle from the young growth. Schnonung. If the selection method of lumbering, most generally practiced without much plan, did not produce any desirable result in reproduction, the clear-cutting which was practiced without system, where charcoal manufacturing or river-driving invited to it, did even less so. In either case, besides the defective and damaged old stubs which were left in the logging, a poor aftergrowth of undesirable character remained, as is the case in the American woods on so many areas. As early as 1524 and 1529, we have record of conscious attempt to secure reproduction by leaving ten to thirty seed trees per acre, but the result was disappointing, for this practice— being applied to the shallow-rooted spruce, produced the inevitable result, namely, the seed-trees were thrown by the winds. This experience led to the prescription in 1565 in the Palatinate to leave, besides seed-trees, 
parts of the other stand for protection against wind damage. Later, wind protection was sought by leaving parcels standing on all four sides, giving rise to a checkered board progress of fellings or a group system of reproduction, which by the middle of the 18th century had developed into the regular strip system applied in Austria 1766 to fir and spruce, and in Prussia 1764 to pine. And this marginal seeding method remained for a long time the favorite method for the conifers. To avoid long strips and distribute the fellings more conveniently, versus Berlepschen Kassel, recommended in 1760 the cutting in echelons, curtain method, Kulissenheib, which ensured better seeding but also increased danger from windfalls and was never much practiced, the disadvantages of the method being shown up especially in the Prussian Forest Order of 1788. In the first half of the 18th century, it was recognized that the wind danger would be considerably reduced by making the fellings progress from east or northeast to west. The conception of a regular, properly located felling series was first elaborated in the Hartz Mountains in 1745 by von Langen, who also accentuated the necessity of preserving a wind mantle on exposed situations. Both of these propositions reappear in the Prussian order of 1780, according to which fellings are to proceed in a breadth of 20 to 35 rods from east to west. The application of a nurse-tree method for conifers was proposed in 1787 by V. Bergstorff, Prussia, a dark position, Dunkelschlag, and a regeneration period of seven years being advocated. In broadleaf forest, beside the selection forest, the natural result of the sprouting capacity of the hardwood had led to a coppice method, which was extensively relied upon for fuel production. This was rarely, however, a simple coppice, for intentionally or unintentionally, some seedlings or sprouts would be allowed to grow on, leading to a composite forest and finally to a regular coppice with standards, 1569, etc., with an intentional holding over of the valuable oak and ash for standards. Probably, however, large areas of unconsciously produced composite forest exhibited sad pictures of branchy overwood with suppressed underwood of poor sprouts, injured by game and cattle, a scrubby growth into which crept softwoods of birch and aspen. Attempts at pruning such scrub growths into shape on quite an extensive scale are on record. The recognition that more wood per acre could be secured by lengthening the rotation of the coppice, which seems to have been mostly twelve years or less, led to twenty and thirty-year turns, and finally to fifty, sixty, and even eighty-year rotations, or so-called polewood management, Brunswick, 1745, also called Hochwald, High Forest. A full description and working plan for such a forest to be managed in 80-year rotation, the city forest of Mainz in the Odenwald and Spessart Mountains, dates from 1773, and this polewood forest management became quite general after the middle of the 18th century, but in the last half of the 19th century it was generally replaced by the true high forest management under nurse trees, the experiences with the natural reproduction of conifer forest having proved the advantages of this method. The primitive beginnings of this so-called Femmelschlag method, compartment selection or shelterwood method, 
are found in 1720 in Hesse, Darmstadt, where Oberforstmeister von Minigerode prescribed regular fellings, progressing from north to south, in which all material down to polewood size, in selection or virgin forest, was to be removed, excepting only a number of clean bowls, one every ten to twelve paces being left for seed and nurse trees. The good results in reproduction stimulated owners of adjoining estates to imitate the method, 1737. The observation that in beech forest the young crop needed protection and succeeded better when gradually freed from the shade of the seed trees, especially on south and west aspects where drought, frost, and weeds are apt to injure it on sudden exposure, led to the elaboration of the principle of successive fellings. In the Ordinance of Hanau, as early as 1736, three grades of fellings were developed, the cutting for seed, the cutting for light, which was to begin when the crop was knee-high, and the removal cutting when the crop was high. This method spread rapidly and was further developed by the addition, in 1767, of a preparatory cutting to secure a desirable seedbed, and by lengthening the period of regeneration and elaborating other detail, so that by 1790 the principles of natural regeneration under nurse trees for beech forest were fully developed in western Germany. In other parts, hardwood forest management was but little developed. The Prussian Forest Ordinance of 1786 contented itself with forbidding the selection method by declaring natural regeneration as practiced in the pineries not applicable, while the Austrian Ordinance of 1786 recognizes only clearing, followed by planting, as the general rule. B. Artificial Reforestation all those sporadic attempts at sowing and planting are on record as early as the beginning of the 14th century. Extensive artificial reforestation did not begin until the middle of the 18th century, by which time planting methods were quite fully developed. Among the hardwoods, the oak was the first to receive special attention. By the middle of the 16th century, the forest ordinances gave quite explicit instructions for planting oak in the so-called Hutefald, a combination of pasture and tree growth such as is found today in the bluegrass region of Kentucky. The remnants of these poor pasture woods with their gnarly oaks have lasted into modern times. In the Forest Ordinance of Brunswick, 1598, orders are given to plant on felling areas, quote, Every fool farmer shall every year at the proper time set out ten young oaks, every half-farmer five, every farm laborer three, well taken up with roots, wildlings, and plant them in the commons or openings at Martini, November, or Mitfasten, Easter, and cover them with thorn brush, to protect them against cattle. About that time it was indeed incumbent on every marker to sow annually five oaks, or plant several young seedlings for every tree cut, and to tend them a few years, and the custom existed in the low country, afterwards 1700 introduced by law in Saxony, to plant in celebration of certain occurrences, a kind of arbor day, especially to celebrate the marriage day. In order to be married, the bridegroom had to prove that he had planted a certain number of oaks, which in Prussia, 1719, had to be six, besides six fruit trees. 
the existence of this custom now long forgotten has given rise in the united states to the story that this is the method by which the german forest is maintained the method of collecting and keeping acorns over winter was well known in fifteen seventy nine as is evidenced by the hohenlocher forest ordinance which advised fall sowing but if that did not prove successful to prepare the ground in summer leave it through the winter and sow in the spring while in earlier times sowing seems to have had the preference at a later period planting was practiced at first with wildlings but as early as sixteen o three we find mention of oak nurseries the prussian order of seventeen twenty ordered the foresters to plant oaks in the openings before christmas for which they were to be paid if the trees were found alive after three years the growing and culture of oak also interested frederick the great who ordered its extension everywhere very explicit and correct rules for growing and transplanting them and some to which we would not subscribe were given in the books of the eighteenth century among the planting methods we find in seventeen nineteen and again in seventeen seventy six one similar to the Monteufel method of planting in mounds while oak culture was especially fostered in northwestern germany the cultivation of conifers first received attention in the southwest and in the same manner which was inaugurated by the nuremberg seed dealer in thirteen sixty eight a new idea introduced in the palatine forest ordinance fifteen sixty five and in the bavarian forest ordinance fifteen sixty eight was the prescription to soak the seed before use and so mixed with sawdust or sand bringing the seed under with brush or iron rakes carlowitz seventeen thirteen taught well the methods of collecting extracting and keeping the seed and even proposed seed tests the seed beds were to be made as for carrots dense sowings to be thinned and the thinnings transplanted into nursery rows the seed beds to be covered with moss and litter to protect them against heaving he also discusses the question of cost the adaptation of plant material to different sites conifers where oaks are not suitable was also understood by the bavarian forest ordinance sixteen eighty three as long as the old method of extracting the seed in hot stoves or ovens prevailed conifer sowings gave but indifferent results in the pine forests of prussia during the second half of the eighteenth century the method of sowing the cones on large waste and sand barrens where the sun would make them release the seed was practiced and before bermontier had written his celebrated memoire sur la dune sand dunes had been recovered with pine plantations in germany in the manner which is still in vogue the planting of conifers came into practice much later and then it was mostly done with wildlings opinions differed as to the value of sowing or planting it was erroneously held until the nineteenth century that planting was less successful and too costly in comparison with the small harvest yield which necessitated cheapness of operations it was only toward the end of the eighteenth century that planting of pine was resorted to but merely for repairing fail places in sowings and natural regeneration and then with a ball of earth seventeen seventy nine using a hollow spade a costly method the cost of a certain plantation made in seventeen fifty one is however reported as less than three dollars per metric ton in seventeen seventy as low as seventy cents per metric ton 
To cheapen the operations, the labor was exchanged for wood, pasture, or other materials or advantages. In Prussia, in 1773, all recipients of free wood had to do service in the cultures. In 1785, every farmer had to furnish a certain amount of cones or acorns. The method lately adopted in Russia came into vogue in Prussia in 1719, namely of charging, besides the value of the wood, a toll to be paid into the planting fund, about 7% of the value. This method was also imitated elsewhere. The use of Waldfeldbau, combined farm and forest culture, was also inaugurated for the purpose of cheapening the cost of plantations by van Langen in 1744. When the great movement for reforesting wastes and openings began, the tree seed being sown with the grain either at once or after farm use for some years. Regular annual planting budgets of fifty to a hundred to two hundred dollars were inaugurated in Brunswick by van Langen in seventeen forty five, and in seventeen eighty one the Prussian Forest Administration had attained so entirely modern planting plans and annual planting budgets. It was no wonder that the fear of a timber famine and the apparent hopelessness of bringing improvement into the existing forest conditions created anxiety and a desire to plant rapid growers, such as birch, willow, aspen, alder. The planting of the white birch became so general in the beginning of the 18th century that a regular betulomania is recorded corresponding to the incipient catalpomania in the United States. At that time, to be sure, firewood was still the main concern, and the use of these rapid-growing species had some justification. But where birch was mixed in spruce plantations, its baneful effects consisting in whipping off the spruce tips and injuring its neighbors were soon recognized, and much trouble was experienced in getting rid of the unwelcome addition. The robinia, which had been brought from America in 1638, was also one of the trees recommended in the middle of the 18th century, and was much planted until Hartish pointed out that the expectations from it were entirely misplaced. Of course, no building material could be expected from these species, hence the larch, also a rapid grower, was transplanted from the Alps, 1730, in Hartz Mountains, and its use was extended as with us, to conditions for which it was not adapted. It was principally a desire for novelty and perhaps for better, especially foreign things, that led to the planting of North American species in parks during the first half of the 18th century. But although F. A. J. von Wangenheim's very competent writings on the American forest flora and on the laws of naturalization, 1787, stimulated interest in that direction, the use of American species for forest planting was not inaugurated till nearly one hundred years later, with the single exception of the white pine, Pinus strobus, of which large numbers were planted. End of section 4. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.